You're listening to the Winnibus.net Podcast Network. Welcome to the world of the orphans. I know you've all been freshly awakened, but I have my own things to deal with, as we are about to crack, 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 The Orphans, an original audio drama experience. Episode 1, available May 23rd, exclusively at oneofus.net. So what do you think of the new digs? It's quite nice, very fancy, very compact. I I, yeah, personally, I feel that the, the West Wing could be a little larger. Uh, you know, but once you knock the hole down and you put the pool in there, and I think that's going to get a nice oh, no, no, we, we've resonance. We've got a subterranean pool. Oh, oh, the subterranean. I just didn't notice it because oh, I've no, never no, been no. past the elevators. Oh, no, you've got to go past the bio staircase. Uh, okay. Uh, watch out for the crocodile pit. All right, okay. Uh, and then there's, the, then there's Brian's enclosure, <laughs> well, uh, which just don't go in. I, I had been attacked by something, but I didn't know who it was. Okay. Now I know. Yeah, statistically speaking, it was Bri Bri. But otherwise, a very nice new place uh, to record. Well, you know, I mean, we got so much going on elsewhere at oneofus.net that, you know, digital noise just needed its own extension. Yeah, you know, and now you could do it anywhere. It's We're kind of like a mobile road show. We could do it anywhere, anytime. We could do it in the road. Yeah, yes, we could. I don't recommend it, though. But, you know... I've seen a whole lot. I mean, I love it. I love the Pollux. The, they're nice. They're originals. You know, I love the uh, the new uh, sunken living room. It's gorgeous. But I haven't seen one thing, Richard. What's There's that? There's one thing that this place is missing. What's that? You know what that thing is? Beer. Yeah. To digital noise on the road, coming from coming from Castle Whitaker this week. <laughs> Castle House Whitaker. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I bow before your sigil, sir. <laughs> yeah, no, which so, is just a, a bearded man holding a microphone, which pretty normally is <laughs> a bearded clothes man, mercifully. <laughs> I'm Richard. I'm Marco, and we are yes, we are back with uh, another stack. Of uh, home releases yes. and uh, a surprisingly good one. A very, very solid slate this week, I'm very pleased to say. Well, first of all, let's get on with the housekeeping. Thank you, as always, for uh, deciding to uh, tune into Digital Noise, uh, part of the oneofus.net family, uh, for your home release uh, news. We do really, really appreciate it. Uh, we also appreciate it if, uh, if you're interested in any of the titles we talk about this week, if you scroll down on the page, you'll see links to every single title on here. Um, if you click on those links, it takes you to Amazon. You can buy the disc there. The great thing is that we get a little kickback from that. That actually helps pay for the site. And more importantly, anything you buy while you're on that trip to Amazon, we actually get a portion of that sales. Every little bit counts. We, you know, we've actually had people who've gone from the site and bought a fridge. That is a true story. Somebody bought a fridge from Amazon and we suddenly went, we had our earnings statement and we were like, oh, and we do super appreciate that. You know, that really actually helps us keep this place afloat, allows us to provide all the free content that, that you get every week, which is this huge amount. 
highly suspect reviews, rage select, all the kind of things that you could possibly listen to. Uh, at the same time, if you want to become a sustaining member, it's very easy to su- subscribe. Tiny amount, starting about two bucks a, uh, a month. Easy peasy. Gives you access to all kinds of extra free content. Uh, the original Gentleman, uh, The Breakfast Pub, which is our weekly ne- uh, weekly news show, uh, and uh, also uh, exclusive, recorded by us, usually while <laughs> quasi-in-our-cups uh, commentaries uh, on classic and uh, more recent films. Absolute bargain. All of that helps us keep the, keep the show on the road. It's cheaper than actually taking them out to a bar and not having to like pay for their drinks or deal with their spittle. Or talk to us. Or talk to them. Or smell them. It's really, perfect. You know, really. Like, you get the best part of the experience, which is the talk. And no smell. And no smell. Or spillage. But now that you've done the housekeeping, is there anything else we need to discuss before diving in? No, we should probably get on to the reviews. And you know what? We're going to start off with a documentary. Oh. We are going to start off with the latest, and I literally have this pile right in front of me, and now I'm looking at it and just going, gather some good stuff this week. Yeah. Uh, This week, it is the the beginning is the latest from Michael Moore, Where to Invade Next. Now, Michael, I know Michael Moore bugs some people. (laughs) Slightly. Endlessly. Um... Because they go, well, he kind of manipulates... That. He doesn't... You know, Michael Moore puts an emphasis on certain things. Michael Moore has a style at this point. He puts a lot of emphasis on himself. Yes. Michael Moore is... Can you tell me of the name of any documentary filmmaker that you recognize on site and that a general audience knows by name? He's no, I mean, that he, recognizable. He's a polemicist. Yes. You know, and with this film, he's actually... i got to say, he's looking a bit rough. He, yeah, he does look yeah. like he like he needs a, a a bath in a couple of weeks at home. He he. I don't know anymore whether he's playing the part of the ugly American or if he really just appears that shambolic in real life. I mean, the man needs a haircut and maybe a trip at the spa, and a haircut. And yeah, he could use a, lose a few pounds. Now, for those people who can't stand Michael Moore and view him as a hypocrite. The, the sight of seeing an enormously obese man lecturing us about the quality of nutrition in children's meals may seem a bit rich, but he does manage to pull out some very, very interesting findings. Because this yeah. is a very simple uh, It's conceit, a simple concept. Yeah. That basically he goes, you know, America's been really good at going to countries, invading them, and coming back with things that it probably didn't need, um, that it probably should have thought twice about, uh, you know, Oil that it that possibly it should be moving away from, uh, occasionally Nazis, you know, stuff like that. You know, <laughs> that was a weird part of the import export trade for a few uh-huh. years. Um, and we'll so get to that why later shouldn't in the show. America instead uh, import really good ideas right. and good concepts? Go to these countries and say, hey, you do this thing really well, we're going to bring it back. So things like uh, prisons that actually work. Uh, nutritious school food. <laughs> Things like holidays, you know, free, free holiday. education, free Workers college holidays. education. So he goes to various um, countries. I mean, he goes to Finland and the Ukraine, and, and not the Ukraine, um, Slovenia, Slovenia. Where go, well, where uh, they have public education is free for everybody up to the college level. Italy. And basically just goes, here's these places, here's their approach to something that is absolutely standard in a, a, a modern civilization, and here's them doing it right. Um, a lot of people are going to be angry about the point that he says, here's them doing it right. And he doesn't say they do it perfectly. He just says it, 
they do it a lot better than we do in America. Yeah. And at the point where he goes to a, a, a French school and the kids are learning how to actually cook food. Yeah. And these are young grade school kids. These are, these are elementary age and kids. It is part of the go, educational program. They're not just eating. They're engaging with their food. They are learning about nutrition. They're learning about quality products. Yeah. And they have like cheese plates and things. You know? It's kind you, of amazing. And you know, he makes a very simple case for this stuff works. There's no excuse for us to not do it. Why aren't we doing it? I mean, it's basically what he did with Sicko uh, when he compared American healthcare to uh, British healthcare and a lot of other nationalized health systems and said, look, these systems work. This one doesn't. Case closed. Here he does it for five or six different tenets of Western civilization. And he makes a really good case for them, particularly if you haven't been to any of these countries and go, yeah, this shit works. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, anybody who has criticized Michael Moore is probably inevitably going to accuse him of cherry picking his information, finding the perfect subjects, being biased and not giving the full story. If you are already have an axe to grind against Michael Moore, this film is not going to change your oh, mind. Oh, it's going to drive you mad. It's going to drive you crazy. But, and this is my only real problem with Michael Moore, uh, because there's nothing in this documentary that I haven't already heard about, read about, or seen. Now, that's no, that's no pat on my back. I recognize that for a lot of people, these may be some actually mind-blowing concepts, but... Given that his name and face are plastered all over the box, the trailer, I think the people who probably could most benefit from this insight are going to reject this movie out of hand just because Michael Moore is in it. But if you can get past that, I think you're going to find that there are some genuinely provocative notions. And contrary to what people might think about Michael Moore, he's not out here to slag America. I won't give it away, but all of this ultimately builds to a realization that he's had about our own country that I think is ultimately optimistic and very positive. That's the thing. Michael Moore is, for all that he has been slammed as a traitor, Michael Moore is one of the greatest American patriots from the sheer level of patriotism. Mm -hmm. He just thinks that America can do better. Right. He's a great booster for America. Yeah, he's like, you know what? There's some stuff we do really, really well, and our instinct is to do the best thing. But we need to find what the best thing is, because at the moment we've kind of forgotten it. And there are some wonderful moments in here, like the couple who go, yeah, of, <laughs> of course we get vacation time. Um, and the the employers who go, why wouldn't we give our employees vacation time? Yeah. And it's actually a positive thing because they actually come back refreshed and wanting to work for us. Why would it prisoners not have keys to, the own, to their own cells, you know, and have, like, access to knives in the kitchen? Yet yeah. No one's afraid that they're going to run away. I mean, we I mean, are... It goes back to the, yeah. the basic ideas of, of, you know, if you've never read it, the, the greatest book ever written on, on how to rehabilitate prisoners and also punish them is called Discipline and Punish. And it's this... You know, it's, it's, um, oh, Barthes, no, it's Barthes or Fouquet. Uh, Fouquet, rather. I'm trying to remember. It's one of the left bank guys. And he basically says, look, you can have systems, prison systems where you punish people and you rehabilitate them and you do all of this in a way that makes civilization feel good about itself and say, look, we got what we wanted. We got the punishment and we got the rehabilitation. And it, you know, presents it as these three corners that if you don't, if you just rehabilitate and don't punish, then, there is a, a sense of dissatisfaction in culture. You have to have all these things, and these prisons do represent that. I, you know, I, I loved this film for what it, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I know that what it does is ultimately very limited because you know, Michael Moore is going to piss people off. But I think he's pre- he's at that point in his career where he's getting like, um, oh, what's his face? Civil War. Oh, Ken Burns. He, Ken Burns. He's an institution unto himself. Who's now got to the point where people were so mad at the Ken Burns style mm-hmm. that, you know, they would, I think it was circuit baseball. People were like, you're just picking a subject and just doing it. And right. now but we've got two things like the National Parks, um, which people said, this is the best thing he's done. This thing's phenomenal. And it puts a thing into a different perspective through the Ken Burns gimmick, mm-hmm. as it were. And I think, you know, now it's just, you know, it, it, this is the Michael Moore gimmick. Yeah. This is how he makes it. It's the, the idea of a documentarian as an auteur. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who no longer putting up with the pretense of objectivity. You know, this is Michael Moore. He is going to be narrating it. He's going to be on camera. It's going to utilize all of his well-known tricks. And again, if you can get past that, you will find, I think, a lot of useful information in this film. And I only wish that it had been longer or had focused on one or two of the topics rather than this sort of buffet style that he utilizes. But still, a very strong documentary from Michael Moore. You know what? We're going to, we're going to stay... Uh... Moderately highbrow Uh-oh. for a moment. Yes. Hello. Hello. And soon will come the fall, I'm sure. Yeah, don't worry. It'll be, it'll be a rocket sled straight to hell pretty soon, kids. Just, just, you know who we are. Why would you expect anything else? Um, we're actually going to talk about an Academy Award nominee. Yeah. Ooh, oh, yes. He, fancy. We, fancy dancy. I can't remember the last time we had one of those. Well, no. No, uh, actually, we had. No, we did have. We had uh, the, the Kate Blanchett film. That yeah, was we, had, last we had one. Carol. We had Carol. Uh, and the last, uh, the, the last show where you went here because you were, work, you were I was working busy. in the movies. On something that wasn't going to win an Oscar, probably. Oh, you never know. You never uh, know. You never know. Strange things have happened. Um, we actually had um, Son of Saul and Phoenix. Oh, yes. um, so now we're kind of like moving, you know, I, I'm working my way through the rest of the uh, foreign language films I didn't see. Yeah. Um, for me, pretty much all of them. Uh, with Mustang. This, I, you know, I'm surprised that you brought this in so early, but I'm, I'm pleased that you did because this is one of my favorite films of this stack. I've got to say, uh, this, I did not expect it to be. I, I honestly think this is my pick of the week. It is mine as well, and which is why I was hoping we put it at the end, because, you know, for the rest of you who are just tuning in to see what our pick of the week is, you can shut it off now. But we no, have lots of other great stuff there, to talk there, about. There were, there was a, there were it a was couple tight. of things in here where I was really, really shocked that this edged out. And there's, there's a, it'd be interesting, because I have one where I was like, this could actually be mine, and it was neck and neck, and I'm going to wonder whether. Uh, you know, I'm curious where we're going to line up there, where that Venn diagram where is going to work. Where our number two were. But uh, ultimately, I sided with this one just because of everything. There's something that I could say, well, this has a better, better cinematography, or that one has better performances. But this is the overall package, and I'm going to have to look at the box because uh, I need to remember the name of the of the uh, director. Uh, Denise Gamze Ogoven. Ogoven, yes. This. A debut feature, uh, fantastic uh, story to kind of break it down, and it's simply, and it's not a very complicated plot. That is part of the pleasure of this film. Uh, you see a bunch of young girls. There's five sisters uh, from the same in family, rural Turkey, rural Turkey, and they've just gotten out of school. And like children all over the world, they've gotten out of school. They're having a good time. They're roughhousing and playing with their school, their fellow students, and they jump fully clothed onto a beach and start playing around and intermingling with the boys as well. It's all very innocent. It's it's very much benign. Yet somebody sees this and reports it. 
and before long, rumors and gossip are flinging about, and the uh, the more their more conservative uh, guardians uh, get a little bit uh, out of hand as far as taking away all of their Western conveniences and taking away their computers and their phones and literally locking them under house arrest. And they start planning how they're going to marry these girls off in a very traditional fashion. Now, imagine that for two hours, and that could sound very grim and harrowing, but the real charm of this movie is in the casting because they got five girls who not only look like sisters, but genuinely are convincing as sisters. There's, there's an incredible, wonderful acting. Incredible naturalism Correct. about them and just the the ease of how they roughhouse and roll around with yeah. each other or get mad at each other. Yes. And yeah, it, it, it's it's actually the thing that I like about this film is that it does not deny all of these girls are eight, are very young. I think the oldest is about 17 yeah. and the youngest, Lale, uh, who's sort of our protagonist who we see uh, the film through her eyes. She's 12 years old and just beginning to bud uh, her sisters are obviously becoming to, beginning to experiment with boys. They're flirting. They're dating. And the the thing to me is that the Denise, the I'm going to butcher the poor woman's name, Ergovan, the director, Ergovan. She allows these young women to be natural. And yes, that includes being somewhat sexualized without being exploitative. There's no denying that these are young girls who are developing, who are exploring themselves, finding who they are at a very critical point in their time. And all of those natural uh, desires and instincts, the society they're in is shutting it down. And you see how the girls in their own ways, both quietly and subtle and sometimes radically begin to rebel against it. And to me, that's, I don't want to give away too much, but it, it is really one of the best films in this stack. Oh, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and you know, what it, what it represents and what I think she, uh, Ergovan does extremely well is depicting what it's like to grow up in a repressive environment, and particularly in you know a traditionalist, not hyper repressive, not hyper reactionary right. These Muslim are Taliban. household, but this is a you know, this is a you know you you could almost have taken this and translate translated it to. 1930s Italy yeah. in a lot of ways. That the girls are locked away and the house becomes much more of a a fortress guarding them against everything that's happening in the outside world and how ultimately that's going to fail. What you're either going to do is break their hearts or they're going to find a way to, to escape. And it, you know the, the way it balances everything out between how the, the sisters act they they're, they're written in age specific ways. Mm-hmm. So the oldest of them is smart enough to go. They're going to marry me off to somebody I don't want to get married to. That isn't happening. If I'm going to get married, and, and this isn't Seven Brides for Seven Brothers overly <laughs> romanticized. This is supernaturalized. She, she basically goes, yeah. If you make me some, marry somebody I don't want to marry, I'm going to stand here and scream and scream and scream and scream. And her, her grandmother, who is her guardian because her parents have died, yeah. is just losing her mind about this. Like how how on earth. Dare you suggest this because yeah. it's going to bring a different kind of shame on the family. She's like, so she's worked her hat because right. she's smart enough and old enough to work out how to blackmail her way. Yeah. And the other sisters, it's how do they? And how every sister reacts differently. Represent- yeah. I mean, but a lot of this comes down to um, Gunes Sensoy. I apologize to her if I, I uh, botched the pronunciation. Aslale, yeah. who is the youngest, is as you said the the a viewpoint into this. 
is annoying, is frustrating, is smart, not in any kind of overly mannered way. No, she's, she's just never. she's precocious. A really, she's a real girl. She's a really smart presentation of an eleven-year-old girl. This is uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people would like Son of Saul was the no-brainer winner for the um, mm-hmm. the foreign language Oscar this year. I, there were, you know, I really like that film. I, I liked it a lot more than Chris did. Um, but if, you know. So far, out of the, the the remaining films I've finally caught up with, both Phoenix and Mustang for me were, were better movies, and I think this is a this is great. I mean, I know it's yeah, we're going highbrow here, folks, yeah. but uh, this really is you know, if you like just good performances yeah. and uh, you know, an insight into an experience that is totally separate from your own, to really feel that even. The characters who you don't like, yeah, that you understand. Why there are no they're monsters doing. in no. this movie. No, and, and you know, the, and in fact, there's a wonderful, there's a there's a wonderful subplot about a football game. Yes, that which I is so wonderfully played out. Yeah, and has an element of natural, uh, an element of. There's some great in there. humor in this oh, movie. Genuinely, funny. I mean, it does have its moments of of lightness in spite. Of, and one thing that I should reiterate, like I said, this is not the Taliban. These aren't women being beaten by. Men in beards. What's very interesting to me is that there is this is very obviously a modern society. The girls go to school with boys. You know, we don't know anything about their parents other than that they passed away. They are living with their grandmother and uh, their uncle, who cares for them, but he's a lot more traditional. And a lot of the people in this community don't seem to adhere to their rules, even though they talk about them. But for some reason, this one family decides to get very orthodox all of a sudden. And meanwhile, all of the girls are dreaming of moving or going away. It's like their cherry orchard. It's their Moscow. They want to get to Istanbul, which is about 100 or so miles away. And Istanbul and Turkey is, is one of the more famously secular of the yeah. Islamic nations. And that's, and that's the thing. It's, it's you know... Can they ever get down the yellow brick road? Yeah, you know. Do, you know, what, you know how do they how do they deal with the the death of, of their childhood and the birth of, and, and, and turning into women in a culture that doesn't right. treat women particularly right. well? Um, yeah, this is great. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I really uh, am super excited to see what uh, Ergaven uh, yeah. does next. And I should say that there is on this film uh, on this disc there is an eighteen minute short that she directed. <coughs> which I also recommend, uh, which has some very interesting parallels. Also has a protagonist named Lale, although it's an older woman. It also deals with, you know, an Islamic, uh, how women, Islamic women are treated in this more uh, secular society that they are living in. And also a very strong piece of work. Uh, it's really worth checking out. Well, moving on to uh, something uh, you didn't have a chance to catch. No, um, I did not. Uh, but also dealing with religiosity in a secular culture um regression um uh, which it, it's it's one of those ethan hawk movies that turns up and you go well you know what probably would have been much worse if it wasn't for ethan hawk and the pe- you know the people that he manages to get attached to a film um, you know he's done he's done these you know except he's like oh you know ethan before sunrise sunset midnight hawk uh occasionally tape Hawk, um, but he's, you know, he makes these interesting little weird sci-fi and horror and genre films where you go, huh? Somehow this really works. You know, Sinister is, is a great example. Um, 
in about the upcoming In the Valley of Violence, which I love. It's a great little film. Even, what, 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 the one that he did with the drones. What do we we reviewed that one too? That was also a good solid little film. Oh yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, clean good kill. The uh, the good kill. Good kill. The, but things like the purge, yeah. which could have been dreadful. Uh, Predestination, which is you know one of the ignored I think it came out basically two years too early uh, if it came out now I think it would be received as a, a really fascinating piece of queer noir hmm. well queer sci-fi noir which is you know this, this all the it's genres a very small genre was. whereas um, Regression is is his satanic panic movie oh. um, he plays a detective in um, rural nowhere again <laughs> um, where he a father is accused by his daughter the daughter is played by Emma Watson um, of abusing her and he goes well I don't remember this but I must have done because well she wouldn't lie so I don't know why I don't remember this and they bring in a psychologist uh, who uh, who goes well yeah we're going to use regression therapy and basically recovered memory so you see where this is becoming problematic already. Uh, he's the psychologist played by David Thewlis. Uh, he, and he, you know, he starts putting the pieces together. Ethan Hawke becomes convinced that this girl must just be telling the truth, and now her father says that she was telling the truth. And then more and more baroque elements enter this, and this idea that well, maybe there's a satanic cult there, and he, you know, people start becoming convinced that something really terrible has happened, and that the you know. Babies are being murdered and all this kind of... Well, the thing is that in a lesser film, and a lesser script, you probably would go, well, you know, okay, this is just a horror movie where there's something evil happening and people are wandering around in masks and robes and killing people in the, uh, in, in the Minnesota winter. Um, well, but as you go on, do? you realise that's not what this is about. This mm-hmm. is about how satanic panics work. And, you know, like I said, this could have been a much lesser film, but, you know, you've got a really strong cast. You've got Hawk, you've got David Thewlis, you've got Emma, Emma uh, Watson, uh, who, you know, she's good in it. She's not stellar in it, but I don't think she's asked to push herself too far in this. Um, the, but it, the real difference maker is that this is um, Alejandro Amenabar, hmm. who probably best known um, for Open Your Eye, the original Open Your Eyes, mm-hmm. Which was adapted into the much inferior Vanilla Sky. Can't stand that film. Uh, also, did the Sea Inside, the Others, which is fantastically underrated and kind of forgotten no, about I, now. No, I thought the Others was one of the best Gothic horrors in many, many years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of been it's, it's kind of slipped off the table. But between them, they actually this is really fascinating hmm. because it is about how if you're in the middle of a satanic panic, how do you convince yourself that all these crazy things happen and in Austin we had a satanic panic mm-hmm. we you know we had uh, Canon, uh, uh, Fran and Dan Keller uh, who were accused of just the craziest crap like it was actually said in court and not questioned that uh, a baby had had its arm removed replaced with a gorilla arm and nobody went well that's clearly nonsense yeah. what the hell are we talking about I would and, have remembered seeing that yeah and then, but what this does really nicely is, is and in a very depressing and thoughtful way explain how you'd fall for that and how you how sensible people can become part of a witch hunt uh, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that Ethan Hawke is one of the great 
tiny visual moment actors. There's, you know, just the, his physicality, his approach to these kind of performances really, really works. You know, as somebody who loves a good satanic panic movie, um, and loves, you know, a film that's gonna, you know, overturn how you conventionally approach this kind of topic, I really like this an awful lot. I think it's, uh, it's, it's well worth hunting down. Okay. Well, um, I have to put it on my list. I, I think you do. Now, after, that said, now let's let, let's go for something oh. which is just uh, you know a good old fashioned slice of exploitation. Scherzo Diabolico. Ah, yes. Which is uh, the latest from Adrian Garcia Bogliano, um, who is the you know he's been working his way up from Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, where he had his breakout uh, breakout film Cold Sweat, which is one of my favorite sleazy little mm-hmm. underground uh, uh, South American horror films. Um, Ella, but he's also he also did late phases. Um, you know, he's he's one of these guys who's really building a reputation as a solid um, uh, horror director. Now, you know, we, the running joke with him is that over the years he's been, you know, steadily working his way north. Yeah, well, he's in, <laughs> as a as a now. as a director. Well, no, because the um, he shot um, uh, Here Comes the Devil um, mm-hmm. in Mexico, which is great little horror film um, and then came up to America for like phases so I actually joked them because I've interviewed him a few times and said well next one's going to be in Canada clearly <laughs> uh, but no he goes back down to Mexico for Skirta Diabolico um, uh, which actually wasn't the film he was going to make he had a much bigger project lined up and that fell through and he went well you know, I've got my cast together I've got my, I've got my crew together I've got the people I want to do this with I'll do something pretty shotgun. Um, the the basic um, plot is that a basically a, a schlubby little office guy, uh, played by uh, Francisco Barriero, who uh, most people will probably know from um, uh, the original version of We Are What We Are. Um, you know, he kidnaps this girl, and you're kind of going well. Why is he kidnapping her? Is he just a pervert? Um, you know, is, you know, everybody is, becomes, con- everybody, when you find out who she is, mm-hmm. everybody becomes convinced, and that's actually a major plot point that we won't give away because right. of, because it's actually, I'm, I'm really happen. being careful how I want to talk about this because it's hard to talk about it without giving away, but you're right. He's just this, he's an accountant. He's, Sort of henpecked by his wife, who's wondering why he works so long and has never gotten a raise. But at the why same he never time, gets anywhere. no one seems to respect him. But, but at the same time, he's life. he's uh, got a, a long running relationship with a prostitute. He's got a prostitute, and so, he's got a mistress at the office. So yeah, you're you kind know. of going like, I don't know how I feel where my sympathies lie with this guy because he's doing because you know he is doing some really horrible things and. The- the things he does with his poor senile father. Yes. <laughs> quite a shocking. That comes fairly early on. But you're right. You're not allowed to know what his end game is till about two thirds through the movie. Then everything clicks. And then suddenly, this is a really, on a premise level, this is a nice sort of almost Hitchcockian little premise. You know, this guy has a plan. His plan works without a hitch. And then, of course, 
moral retribution is rained down upon him in the last third of the film, which should be, and probably for most people, is going to be the most fun part of the movie, where it kind of really delves more into a black comedy. I mean, it's even right there in the title, Scherzo Diabolico, which basically translates into, like, diabolical joke. Uh, in that sense, it's not, uh, it reminds me almost of things like, uh, uh, oh, goodness, I'm going to forget the name, famous guy cuts out of the bathtub. Um, forget that. Suffice it to say... Guy gets out of the bathtub? No, it's the great French diabolique. Oh, yes. Diabolique. Uh, where, you know, the, <laughs> where everyone has this intricate plan and the plan finally happens and then you see how the plan comes apart after it's been executed perfectly. The problem for me with this film, and I can't get into it without going into spoilers, which I will not do, but I do feel that towards the end, uh, the violence... It becomes a bit disproportionate, and I think it becomes somewhat morally incoherent. However, well, wait, wait, I'm not I, going to bash it. I think it's worth checking out, I, I, well, and you can make your own mind. For me, and what this does, is that this is a very brutal noir. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a while ago, I got to talk to the director of the, um, uh, the, the, noir fan, the film Noir Foundation, and he gave me a wonderful definition of what noir is, and it's Good people doing bad things. And this guy, and, and, you know, the question is always, why do they do the bad thing? Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, he does it because he's weak. And he could, you know, this is a guy who would rather come up with an elaborate plan right. where he, which he can get away with because he's wearing a mask rather than be himself and go and ask his boss for a raise, which is the, the start of all this is he just won't yeah. ask his boss for a raise, which is, you know, I, but you, you also look at the special features. It's one of the special features is a, a lengthy interview with three of the women from the cast saying behind every weak man. So it's right there. My problem is that it implies that the female characters are somehow representative of strength and none of them are. They're all victims. They're either whores, they're prostitutes, they're mistresses, they're cold, shrewish, you know, uh, frigid, ball busting wives. And yet they seem to think that they're creating very compelling uh, complex characters, and I did not feel that way. I well, think I'm supposed to think they are, but they, that is I, not how I read it. I, I got the feeling that they were all, they were all dreadful, but what happens to everybody is disproportionate to what kind of, you know, it basically says there, you know, it's, it's, it's an amoral film. It, it's a it bit, you know, because is. it basically says, you know, when you, when you start pushing certain, when you start pushing the dominoes, mm-hmm. You can never tell who's going to get caught up. You yeah. can never tell who's going to get hurt. You can never, never tell what the consequences are. And that's it, it, basically it undercuts the whole idea that a, a, a script is going to have some form of justice. Right. There's it's really none of that. Shit ha- you know, this, this guy fucks up and he fucks up so badly that everything falls suffers. apart. There's, there's, there's yeah. no kind of like, did we learn a lesson? Nobody gets what they deserve in this film. They get... Nobody deserves what they get in this film. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, but anyway, it, it is still a very strong, very stylish thing. Uh, the special features are also kind of interesting. Uh, there's a couple of very technical uh, uh, featurettes regarding the cinematography that I found very interesting because I like that kind of nuts and bolts stuff. So it's a good... It, that was, it was kind of one of those, I could make this a pick of the week despite my reservations. Ultimately, I had to go uh, with... a. Uh, uh, I was going to say Magnum, but that's not it. Mustang, Mustang. Uh, Magnum, Which is just movie. so good. But it's so good. It's so crazy good. Like yeah. seriously, like if you're going, 
Turkish coming of age movie? It's like, yeah. dude, do yourself a favor. You need that film in that your life. That sounds like a horrible Lifetime movie, but you know what? It turned out to be better than I thought. <laughs> speaking, speaking, of, speaking of horrible Lifetime yeah. movies that turned out to be a lot better than I thought. Yes. Now, folks, my feelings on Lifetime movies are well established. Yes. I think that Lifetime is... Speaking of A Place With No Morals, um, <laughs> please go back and, and uh, re, uh, listen to my reviews of all the Flowers in the Attic films, which, Chris, uh, I will hate you forever for making me watch. Uh, also, go to, the Austin Chron- go to austinchronicle.com and I've written at length about them because they are my great white whale. Uh, I truly despise those. Uh, yeah, and we, you know, Lifetime has done some really, really dirge movies where they just would, took a, a either an old book uh, or a uh, a biopic and botched the job horribly. Yeah. I mean, I've used that term before. This reminds me of a Lifetime movie, and it's never a compliment. And but. Now, obviously, I think you've been burned by some Lifetime movies. I can tell you're a little bitter about this. No, I haven't been burned. Uh, I've, been, I've been hurt. I, I should be asked where the Lifetime movie <laughs> where touched me. Uh, well, but for me, what I say, what I mean when I, what I what I mean when I say Lifetime movie is is a competently made but kind of dull pedestrian safe sort of melodrama. You know, maybe around domestic issues or a disease of the week. So. Suffice it to say, none of those things really match up with what we're about to talk about. Manson's Lost Girls, yeah, which I didn't realize was a Lifetime film until I until I looked at the box yeah. uh, because I was I sat there going, you know what? I'm really shocked I didn't see this on the festival circuit last year. Ah. This felt like a you know, a, a B, you know something that would appear at a B level festival, yeah. not not necessarily one of the big ones, but yeah. definitely you know a, a good solid B level festival, possibly one in the Midnight Strand. I was like, mm-hmm. this is a Lifetime movie. Truly shocked. Uh, this is uh, directed by uh, Leslie Liebman, who... Uh, what did she do? Um, mostly NCIS. <laughs> well, no, I mean, there she is, is a she has done, procedural she has done, element to this. She has done a lot of episodes of NCIS, uh, inclu- uh, two, two episodes of NCIS New Orleans as well. Yeah. Um, so she has range. Yeah, but she's, a, you know, she's done a lot of episodic TV stuff. And here she is, you know, they're tackling... It's the Charlie. It's Charlie Manson. It's the Tate LaBianca killings, mm-hmm. uh, but not from the viewpoint of um, of Manson. No, the, the focus is right there in the title: Manson's Lost Girls, particularly on Linda Kasabian. Yes, who uh, was the key witness for the prosecution? She she basically was the getaway driver who was like, "This is going to end really right. badly." Played here by Mackenzie Morsey. Yeah. Um, it's basically how this. You know, it's very. By the numbers, in a lot of ways, yeah. you aren't getting any big shocks here. Yeah. Everything is still is, is well established. But there's a nice queasy visual style to it yeah. that sells it. Basically, she, you know, how does she become part of this cult? Right. Well, drugs and fucking. Yeah, and to be honest, she was only in the cult for about four to five weeks. That's one reason, perhaps, why she wasn't as brainwashed as the others. She was still pretty new. She just happened to join right as this horrible thing was about to go down. Everything goes tits up. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the real selling point for this. I mean, you know, there's a lot of really strong performances, mm-hmm. but you know, in fact, the, the weirdly the weakest uh, performance uh, from kind of just feeling like you really get the character 
um, is the uh, the guy playing uh, Charlie Manson. Yeah, I mean that's a, it, that in a way it's the plum role, but it's also the thankless role because one thing that I've always had a problem, and mind you, there have been numerous. There have been numerous versions of this kind of movie. There's been several Manson uh, films that have been made over the years. This is the one that actually kind of really the, focuses the, the on best, one The person. best horrible Gonzo one is... Um, uh, was the original Helter Skelter? Yeah, the original Helter Skelter was really good. Um, God, what was that? And I, it was that guy who was also in The Stuntman. Uh, he played Manson. That was kind of his last big claim to fame. But, you know, the thing about this film is that it still feels like a TV movie. Now, it's a little bit more lurid in terms of, you know, its sexuality and depiction of drug use, and there's a little bit more gore than you'd expect on a Lifetime movie. Yep. But you can't not do that, given this subject matter. So it doesn't feel as exploitative as it might have been, because when you're dealing with this story, those are elements that are factual. You have to address them. However, they do it sort of tastefully, and that's where it betrays its sort of cable, small television roots. Uh, you still have moments that end with a dramatic musical swell and then they cut to black where you know the commercial would have been although not as egregiously as a lot of no not stuff. as often uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Lipman actually I think knows how to pace those things yes. a lot better uh, but the, the real selling point of this is uh, Grace Victoria Cox mm-hmm. as uh, Squeaky Front Squeaky Front uh, I thought it was Susan Atkins who was the more terrifying one no 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 it's, it's uh, Squeaky Front who's the, the really lost her marbles yeah I mean well most of these girls did and, and the thing about this film is Linda is the one girl as messed up as she is she is the one who begins to see how this is all coming apart and begins to realize just how horrible a person Manson is. This is why I said earlier that it's kind of a thankless role, because we have to believe. And one of the most shocking parts of this story that people still can't get their heads around is how did this one pathetic little man who'd spent most of his life in prison, had next to no education, was not the brightest knife in the dr- sharpest knife in the drawer, yet he convinced all these people to follow him. You need someone with an unbelievable amount of charisma to portray that, and it's very hard to pull that off and still believe it. Yeah, this guy does a good job. Jeff Ward gives you know, a good shot, but yeah. it's yeah. But you know, honestly, in the canon of Manson films, mm-hmm. this is surprisingly strong. Yeah, uh, it is. This, I, I was. Not like I said, I wasn't expecting anything because I hadn't really heard anything about it beforehand. Um, then I'm watching it and just kind of going, "This is really good." Like I said, when the penny dropped and I found out this was a Lifetime movie, I almost forgave them for a couple of earlier transgressions. But then I remembered their Whitney Houston movie and like, no, 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 this is an aberration. But apparently they have taken it on board. Yeah, people have treated them as a joke and they've got a few new producers in they, over there who are going check some fresh we blood in need here. to not be treated like imbeciles yeah. we need to not be the redheaded you know at, at this point in the history of cable you have to be good there's no right. excuse and yet crap but their market still dictates that they because of their audience think about this here is a movie about sex drugs rock and roll murders cults very no cursing moderate amount of blood and a lot of people it's the kind of movie where everybody has sex but nobody ever takes their bra off unless they do it tastefully with their back to the camera so it's not as lurid as it kind of wants to be but given the fact that it's happening within the context of a lifetime movie it feels a lot sleazier than it is you feel like wow grandma's just cursing 
it felt a little odd like that. But no, it's much stronger and better than I certainly expected it to be. Um, yeah, moving on to kind of crazy teenagers. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, um, and a film that I you know I've been hearing good word about mm-hmm. previously, haven't had a chance to see, uh, which is Emily. Um, E-M-E-L-I-E um, which is I, I refer to these as uh, cuckoo's nest horror mm, mm-hmm. the, it's this idea of an interloper in your house uh, the classic is, is uh, the stepfather which mm-hmm. is still sadly uh, the most underrated of the you know, of the, uh, of the, of the, the more cerebral cerebral something years since I've seen it but yeah, it was good great film it's aged extraordinarily well very influential on a lot of horror mm-hmm. writers uh, but the basic idea um, is you know this couple going out on their anniversary dinner mm-hmm. uh, get a babysitter Bad idea, folks. Yeah. Just, just a terrible, terrible, terrible. When your guy. babysitter shows up and you go, "Oh, where's the you? Where's the normal girl? Oh, she couldn't make it tonight. You better actually verify that and not just take her word at it." Well, and, and a real nod to um, uh, stepfather. You know, you actually see right from moment one that the girl who turns up is not who. She oh, claims yeah. to be. They don't play that game with you. No, and I, you know, I, I was just like, "Oh, thanks for respecting me as somebody who's seen this kind of film before and therefore right. knows what's going to happen." Uh, you know, I, the the girl who claims she is Anna, who's uh, Sarah Bolger, who's currently into the Badlands and it was once upon a time, starts pushing, but she's not trying to manipulate the right. three kids. She is definitely pushing their buttons. Yeah. So with the oldest kid, she she's a little. She starts off being a little bit sexualized towards him, mm-hmm. and then realizing because he's just on the verge of adolescence, you know, this is how I can. That's his button. Right. And then at one point, does something where you go, "Holy hell, yeah. she's batshit crazy!" Oh yeah. And it never pulls back from that. You know, she is just controlled enough to get through the door it starts off with allowing little transgressions little rad belly it's like imagine the cat in the hat and thing one and thing two only more psych it's like oh we can do whatever oh mommy said don't mind what mommy or the fish say sure you can paint on the walls sure you can stay up all night you can eat whatever you want and as the wheels turn this is again another one that I was almost leaning towards a pick of the week Very because close. such a strong cast of so kids. Close. Now, once I saw Mustang, I totally reevaluated. Like, okay, but for a genre piece like this, the three kids are still very natural. Later on, I do think they kind of get in. There's some implausible moments because they don't seem as freaked out as I thought they should be from the get-go. But it's still a wonderful performance by the three kids, particularly the, uh, the young boy whose name I, I'm blanking on. But he's the first one who realizes that there is something seriously wrong with the babysitter. And part of the fun of this is watching him using the few resources he has. In a way, it almost becomes like a little a merger of like the diehard films and, and, you know, babysitters from hell movies. He's trapped in this building with this crazy person with no contact. Uh, it's Joshua, Joshua Rush. Yes. Who plays Jacob. And he really has to carry a lot of the picture, as does the actress playing Emily. Who is... Phenomenal. Oh yeah, very very good. Yeah. Sarah Sarah Bolger is it, this is this is one of those horror performances that I think people will look at and go, this is there's a depth and a variety and an yeah. erraticism mm-hmm. that she could have just played this so big and right. so ridiculous that it would not have worked. Um, you know, it was 
as horror performances the the last uh, couple of years go, I mean, for, for, for female leads, this is up there with Alexandra Esso in mm. uh, Starry Eyes, which I think is one of the great horror performances of the decade. Um, and Rose Leslie in Honeymoon, which if you haven't seen, folks, you really need to go and see that. But yeah, Sarah Bolger is great in this, you know, because she, you, you just spend the entire time going, you are really deeply frightening. And the only way that you have to only pull this with kids around because adults in 10 seconds flat would realize you are. Right. But that's yeah. crazy. But the really great thing that this, uh, that the script pulls off, which is the uh, first time script by uh, Richard Raymond, Harry Herbeck, which is his name. Mm-hmm. I thought it was two rights initially. And this is a debut feature uh, for the director as well, yeah. uh, Michael Thalen. Um, that you understand why she is this broken. Yeah. And when you get to the end, this, there's a depth here that you you don't normally get. Yeah. In I think you're increasingly getting it in in kind of in indie horror at the moment, which has bypassed the gore phase and gone really much more for like why why are these characters terrifying? And I you know I really really liked this. No, I mean lot. I mean how many how many you you've seen so many screen queens. Think about so many like the slasher flicks from the seventies and eighties. Many of them were fun, but usually. You found a young girl, a bunch of cute people in the cast. They get semi-naked and they run around and scream, and that's all they really had to do. Here, though, you have both protagonist and antagonist who are allowed to be a little bit more human. And I think filmmakers are figuring out that the movie's actually scarier when the people are believable. <laughs> which I can't say about the next film, which is one that mercifully... Uh, you know what? I took a bullet for you on this one. All right. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Submerged. Oh... But it has Mario Van Peebles and it, Tim it, Daly. How can this be it, bad? It does. It Those guys' Mario track Van... records speak for themselves. Never sir. poor. Never made, never made a bad decision <laughs> in, their, in their entire lives. This had so much potential. It starts off <coughs> with a limousine going off a bridge. Mm-hmm. The driver gets pinned. He can't get out. The kids in the back, uh, the bunch of teenagers in the back are, are just like, what do we do? What do we do? There's another of the teenagers is up front. She's unconscious. You're like, oh, hang on. What's happened here? You get a lot of flashbacks explaining what's happened. That this is a small steel town and it's going down the tubes. But the, the girl who's unconscious in the front is the daughter of the guy who owns the steel mill. The guy who's driving is, uh, you know, ex, ex-military who's come back and is, you know, running security, but is, you know, really kind of, he's an okay kind of guy. He's, he's, a stalwart of the community. And then it flips back and it's back inside as they're trying to work out how to get out. And then it flips back to, oh, here's more stuff and there's issues with drug dealers. And then it goes back inside and they're trying to, you and then it's a different flashback. And then, and it just... So it's like that Ryan Reynolds movie where he's buried alive only they don't trust you enough to figure out the mystery by yourself. Yeah. This whipsaws back and forth um, between not particularly interesting action sequences and and narration and info bombs that you're just like, yeah, oh, wow. no, these these aren't really well done. And oh, yeah. the characters are boring. Um, ex- I mean, just flat as pancakes. There's the annoying one, the slightly creepy one, the mysterious kidnappers who were the ones who pushed them off the uh, off the bridge in the first place. 
which seemed like a terrible plan, and then seemed to have unlimited resources to try and get this this uh, armored limousine up from the bottom of the canal. I'm like, really? <laughs> you were planning to knock them into the canal? This just this seems like the point where you go, oh shit, this has gone wrong. Run, run, run. Um, it has a terrible denouement because it, it commits the cardinal sin of a good sealed bottle drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really sad about this is that last year, uh, and we actually reviewed it on the show, there was a little indie uh, um, uh, crime flick called Vanished, where mm-hmm. it's a very it's a it's a similar kind of conceit that a an heiress gets kidnapped by these two guys in a van. And the camera never leaves the van yeah. for the entire 90 minutes. It's not a single shot, but right. they pull off some, some tricks with, with the camera that are really impressive, but while, while never leaving the van. And, uh, you know, it's a brilliant little conceit. Done on a fraction of the budget of this, so much smarter, so much better. And there were points where I was like, you know, I'm watching this, I really, I really, I need to go back and, and watch Vanished again because, it's not the world's greatest film, but it's smart as Hades. Yeah. Whereas this is just laborious. I nothing about this to recommend. Mm. Mario Van Peebles turning up and going, basically going, "Hi, I'm Mario Van Peebles. I'll turn up again at the end." Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. And so he's not really in it. He's just there to provide a name on the title. He on, probably yeah, did about. Poster. He probably did about two days' work. All right. Well, yeah. You know, he. We all need the cash. Yeah, you know, he does stellar work while he's there for a man who's clearly going. The check cleared? Yeah. Is, uh, are we, are we, oh, we're, oh, we're still shooting. Okay, yeah. My flight's in two hours, so wrap it up. Yeah, I, it, it is. I, a few years ago, I got to talk to Michael Madsen about some of the films that he's in where I said, some of them aren't great. And he went, you know, there's films where they go, look, we just want you to turn up and do a supporting cameo. And uh, then you, you know, six months later, you're in the airport in Belgrade. And your face is on the cover of the DVD. And you're yeah. like, what the hell? I turned up for literally an afternoon as a favor to a friend. I, I'm not the star of this film. What? And, you know, that's Mario Van Peebles in this. Same with Tim Daly, who, you know, yeah, like he's shifting big bucks. Um, yeah, no. Submerged. Go, go watch Vanished. Go watch Buried, which is the Ryan Reynolds film. Yeah. Uh, Either of those, or phone both, or lifeboat. I, oh, I yeah. love, I love that little. There's almost a little subgenre about you're trapped in a room or in a very confined oh, the, the, space. The sealed, the sealed bottle drama. Yeah. It's, a, it's a classic. And they not enough people do it well. Or Splinter, which is uh, yeah, that's a yeah, yeah a nice little horror film hmm. where they're basically people. Are trapped. Oh, they're trapped in the the, the like the gas station. Yeah, and yeah. There's, there's some kind of weird disease that just turns you into right. a you know <clears throat> kind of. Black spiny thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of half fungus, half porcupine. Um, <laughs> you know what? Speaking of half fungus, half porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, folks, there are some films in the history of the world <coughs> that, yeah, they've got an undeniable place. Yeah. They earned it. There is something about them that you can never take it away from it. But they're not actually that good. No. They're actually um, quite terrible at some fundamental levels. You know, the first plane that the Wright brothers ever built was a crappy plane. Yep. This is one of the first early exploitation films. So yes, it's important. The but first it's film that Rudy crappy. Ray Moore made yes. is, is, is terrible. Now, look, I know there's a whole bunch of people out there who are going to be very upset when I say, 
Dolomite is not a good film. It is not. I'm here but to the back tr- you up on it's, that. It's not a good film. This it's is not. this is an absolute exploitation classic. It yeah. is so seminal that when ODB did the video of Gotcha Money, mm, yeah. like it's just yeah. clips from Dolomite, which is so important in the history of black exploitation because yeah, Rudy Ray Moore prior to this was you know, completely a, a financed cabaret himself. genius. You know, he built. You know, he, he kind of came uh, through the whole genre and, and industry of you know basically blue albums. He was the party record king. Yeah, he was absolutely guys like Jimmy Lynch and you know all those guys. Red Fox. Red and Fox. He was Dolomite or Dolomite. Rudy Ray Moore was on the top of that that heat for a brief period of time. And he, somebody went, "Let's make a film," and he went. Okay, I can do that. I think it was no. Rudy Ray Moore who said, I'm going to make a movie. Because Rudy Ray Moore is, in a way, he's kind of the Donald Trump of uh, the exploitation cinema, of black exploitation, just with bigger hands. Rudy Ray Moore is convinced that he is the sexiest, smartest, most powerful, most charismatic, most kung fu ass-kicking guy you've ever met. He's funnier than you. He's faster than you. He's more attractive than you. And then you see... Rudy Ray Moore, and you see a man who's kind of pushy middle age. He looks a little punchy, and he's dressed outrageously. But every woman in this script is required to jump on him the minute he walks through the door. It feels like a vanity piece, and you well, can't, that's because it is, and it is. <laughs> the thing is, and now we were talking about the various things in this pile that would almost have been a pick of the week, and this is certainly not there. But if I had to go base just on special features alone, oh, this, this is, is a, a really well-packed disc. Yes, absolutely. There's, they even have an alternate framing of the film, okay? You get this film twice. Not just the standard original aspect ratio as it was conceived by the director of photography, who was actually the son of Josef von Sternberg, of all people. But they actually released it accidentally in full frame, which is where why you see all the boom mics at the top of the shots. Yeah, it's great. And that, that was that the is... source of so many... You can see that version if you really want to. Which actually is slightly more entertaining. Yeah, nothing about... This is... It's a very standard plot line that, is, that actually got raided heavily over the year. Mm-hmm. That guy in prison for something he didn't do comes out and goes to set the neighborhood back back to right. right. But well, there's the basic problem that Rudy Ray Moore's character is a pimp. And I yeah. don't mean lightly a pimp or has a, a big hat or you know the godfather from WWF. No, no. He is a pimp. Yeah. He runs a whorehouse and is mad because his former rival has taken over his old whorehouse. And surprisingly, all of the whores have sworn fealty to him. So even though he's been in prison for all these years... They have just been continuing to operate it in the hopes that when he gets out, they'll be able to give him all this cash. I'm thinking, haven't any of these people ever th- realized, hey, you know, we could just cut out the middleman? You yeah. know, we could just do it's, this ourselves. Every, but everything about this is truly, it, it, this, there's this level of glorious ineptitude. Oh, God, um, it is. It, the, moment, the moments when Rudy Ray Moore tries to do martial arts, and there is... If the other guy could feel the breeze from his boot, I'd be surprised. He, but he just this this is basically Rudy Ray Moore doing the Rudy Ray Moore thing. When it's at its best, it's basically just a concert movie of Rudy Ray Moore standing there delivering some of his 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 obscene poems, right? 
which are only there because that is what he was famous for. Well, it's, it's not. Yeah, he's, he's not only the biggest pimp; he's also the greatest entertainer. Yeah, and you and have to believe he's the greatest. Segment of a, a Rudy Ray Moore concert towards the end. Yeah, yeah, where he comes out and does that. This was like, his act. The band's there as well. Uh, there's only actually one person that can act in this entire film. Yes. Uh, also, there. Uh, by the way, watch for major continuity errors. Um, there is a point where there are five people in a car. One of them is white. She is one of the few white characters in this. I mean, this was part of why it was important. You know, this was a, you know, DIY black film mm-hmm. at a point where, you know, the, the black film industry in the South had died off. Suddenly you've got somebody who's actually, you know, you've got, you've got this black exploitation industry which is actually starting to appear and it's like, oh shit, this is really important from that point of view. Other people did it much better. Uh, in fact, Rudy Ray Moore did it better later. Mm. But there's one, but yeah. They're in this car, and suddenly the white actress disappears. Yeah, like literally just disappears. They lost like, her that day. Like, she, you know, did, did, did she fall out? Did she wander off? And it's like, and you go, hang on, let's start looking for continuity errors. And this film is filled with so many like just basic continuity errors, oh, like people just fall out of a scene or bad kung fu or this, this shots whole... that go on way too long oh, or get cut off in the middle or scenes that are covered from one angle and that's the whole scene characters who have one line and then you never see them again yeah. uh, but the only person who can actually act um, is Lady Reed who plays Queen Bee who was looking after the whorehouse while, while uh, Dolomite's in jail and well the actor who sh- played the FBI agent oh, I he's thought not he bad. was competent he's competent but Lady Reed and there was a, the I thought I bring she up, was a little stiff. She was a little stiff. She'd never acted before. Yeah. She actually, um, she was in there because she was one of Rudy Ray Moore's protégés. And there was a really great little interview on this disc, yeah. um, which is it's uh, Vinegar Syndrome. I put out the edition, and they've done great. They've done great work. The restoration looks as good as it's going to. Oh yeah, <clears> this never is never going to look good. It's never going to look better than this. Yeah, <laughs> this is the definitive release. You cannot yeah. make this better. Yeah, I mean, do you remember the episode of The Simpsons where they uh, they go and buy the RV, and the RV dealer goes, "Yeah, this is the this is the RV for you." And I mean that literally. You cannot afford anything else. Well, this is the film restoration version of this. Yeah. This film is not going to get any better than this. It just can't, you know, this, it was not shot well enough or stored well enough or maintained well enough to ever, you know. I Even think when it was, it was pristine on, from the lab, it never looked good. I think it was, this was probably shot on like, you know, borrowed 8mm yeah. well, stock. Well, here's the fascinating thing about this. And this falls into that weird category of film where, yes, you can look at its cultural relevance, its history, and, and it gets a pass because of where it stands. But the special features, the making of stuff, is actually more interesting than the film. And while I know we've kind of slagged on it a little bit, if you listen to the commentary by Mark Jason Murray, the film historian who became a friend of Rudy Ray Moore, he also did the very commendable job of hunting down many of Rudy Ray Moore's collaborators, interviewing them, getting them on the record, many of them before they passed away. And really, it's a fascinating story about how Rudy Ray Moore basically shoots this in his house and his house happened to be a hotel an abandoned hotel so you hear all these various stories about how he obtained set if you look in the credits Rudy Ray Moore is listed as the set dresser because he lived in a hotel with all these abandoned rooms so he's like I'll make this into a club and then I'll have it set up and then when we have enough money to shoot we'll come in and we'll shoot that meanwhile this horrible little room well I'll put a cork board over here and, and I'll put a couch and this is the warden's office so he had all these locations literally under one roof <laughs> and then they somehow acquired power or running water <clears throat> somehow 
the, the details behind the making of this film are far more entertaining than the film itself. Oh, no, they, they, I recommend they're, they're, listening they're, they're to the commentary. They're interesting and they're, they're as entertaining yeah. as watching it drunk yeah. and watching yeah. the Boom Edition. But it also just kind of... One thing, whenever I see a movie like this, no matter how cheap or horrible it is... Uh, there, I despise bad movies that are made by people who should know better and who are competent. You have to give some credit to the man for actually accomplishing this movie under the circumstances he did. He didn't make a good movie, but he got it done. So anyway, we should move on to a movie that actually had probably about 5,780 billion percent more money than Dolomite. And I'm talking about... Mojin, yes, the, the, the lost legend, the lost uh, legend, a, a, aka, AKA um, Chinese national treasure. Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. That really is what it is. It, it is, and even then, that tells you right there what it is. It's not Indiana Jones or the Mummy or anything. It's all those films that came afterwards. It's inspired by those sorts of films. If you like those movies, you'll probably dig this. Based, Tomb Raiders, basically. Based on, um, apparently based on a series of best-selling novels. I hear this is like these... the middle chapter of like seven. It's this like the third or fourth. Probably. Because it doesn't, because it, it puts you in the middle of it and you go, I suppose it might Who are these people? people? Um, the, the, the Mojin are a variety of Tomb Raider who were the... They're sanctioned by the Chinese government. And have been since the age of the emperor. Right. Um, and... You know what? This is apparently there's only three of them now. This is this is such a weird film for various reasons. There is a very standard. Oh, we have to find this strange MacGuffin because this artifacts <coughs> because reasons because um, of reasons. And this, you know, they you know they were all together in China and then they went to the states because. Because they got some budget and money in New York, and know. then you know they yeah American investors, yeah. Uh, and then everything falls apart. And they're all kind of, you know, they're all, then one of them wanders off, and he's going to go find these the, the MacGuffin by himself, and then the, the equinox others, flower, the uh, yeah, which Don't, may have come from outer space, MacGuffin, um, and then the other ones decide to, you know, go. It's well, this problem. He's trying to work out are they trying to going to stop him or compete with him or help him. It's never really established. It's just like yeah. we'll need to be in these big CGI environments, and the people who've hired them, you know, of course are the. Are totally on the up and up as to their intention. Oh yeah, we just want to find this thing. You know, well, even their motivations never quite one hundred perfectly. Yeah, there's a few changes in that storyline as it goes. One thing about this movie is, yes, there's good action. Yes, there's great set design, great production value. Even the CG is pretty good. Even at its worst, it still has a lovely kind of painterly quality to it. I appreciate a lot of the visual imagination on display here, but. The film often borders in incoherence. Okay, here's and I'm the, not saying which side of the border. Yeah, it, it basically goes back and forth. Uh, there is a moment early on in the film. Which, now, the part that, of this movie that's actually surprisingly compelling, just the fact that they did it. This is a Chinese film, and at one point, it, it's all set in the 80s. But at one point, we flash back to the 60s. We see our protagonists as young people, and they are members of a Chinese youth brigade who are out on the borders of Mongolia doing whatever Chairman Mao wants them to do and they come across this field with these ancient statues that were dedicated to a goddess and they figure you know what these are symbols of feudalism and we as good 
Red Book carry malice should desecrate them, which they do. And of course, in a movie like this, that immediately triggers a plague of flesh-eating locusts, which causes them to run into a cave, which turns out to be a Japanese bunker from World War II, littered with dead Japanese soldiers. Here's here's where this film is super weird. Oh, oh, I haven't even got into this, because I need to say this, and then I'll let you finish up. They go into this tomb, and they find more statues. They go, we should desecrate them. You literally are in this situation because you desecrated other statues. Here's, here's where this film is super weird. Um, is the politics of it. Because Chinese films, we all know how the Chinese film industry uh-huh. is, that it is laden with whatever the politics of the moment are. And the fact that you have the you know these children, literally of the revolution, uh-huh. you know, loyal Maoists... Going out and destroying artifacts of Imperial China and getting their comeuppance. Yes. And I was like, that's weird as fuck. Yes. But then because, they do it again. But no, no, it's I mean there, they're just stupid. But right. But like the politics of them actually suffering the consequences of doing what would be wanted during the Cultural yeah. Revolution is really weird. And the, and the the Japanese in, in a rarity for a contemporary Chinese uh, movie. Uh, yeah, when they turn up, the Japanese are the bad guys, but they're not monodimensional, ridiculous bad guys, which is the real habit. I mean, what's this guy? Is something changing in so, Beijing? So the Japanese zombies actually have more depth than the typical portrayal of living Japanese people. Actually, yes. Uh, I have so, seen some Chinese yeah. films recently where the outright racism towards the Japanese oh, yeah, absolutely. is spectacular. But it's it, this is a really... I, there are people who know Chinese cinema way better than me who are going to be able to look at this and go, you know, this is really... Yeah. A, a really odd moment. Well, that's because, why I was harping on that other oh, moment. Yeah, it's because so I, don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's people being stupid because the plot requires them to. Oh, that. Or if it's actually a sly... Commentary. It's like you already screwed it up once, and yet you're so zealous, you're going to do this again. I, I think it it is something that is required of the script because they need to do something stupid at that point. But the fact that it got greenlit with a yeah. big ass budget, this is one of the most expensive. Oh, yeah. um, it looks it Chinese films I've seen in years. That um, I'm watching this and going, you something is a yeah you know, after after so long of. You know, really beating the drums for you know the 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 Chinese uh, political experience and not taking any pot shots at the Cultural Revolution. This takes some pretty this takes some yeah. pretty serious pot shots. I'm like, this is weird. I did not expect this from this film. Uh, and then you kind of got this big dumb action film in the middle of it, which you know, I imagine that's how it exactly slipped through. They missed it in the midst of all this other confusing stuff. The, well, that's part of the problem is that this is so dependent on understanding the Chinese zodiac. For major plot points that I think for, you know, you may have to go and do some research at some point. You may have to stop it and go, I thought I was just watching a big dumb action film. But then I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of international audiences or go watch National Treasure and they go, am I supposed to know this thing yeah. about, you know, obscure American political history? It's like, well, no, because you did take civics in right. uh, an American high school. You know, it, it, this is a... It's not just a Chinese film; it's a profoundly Chinese film, uh, with all that comes with that at this moment. But you know, it's it's, it's fun. fun, it's dopey. Uh, Way through the silly bits, and there's some really entertaining stuff. In it. Indeed. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> now 
uh, a film which I knew nothing about until uh, Chris pushed it into my hands. You told me that in this stack was a better than average Lifetime movie. And I thought, based on the cover, that you were referring to, to this one. Redeemer, starring... Remember. Yeah. Oh, remember, Bob. Redeemer? Why did I say Redeemer? All remember. Right. Um, starring... Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer and Martin Landau. Oh, who, yeah. by the way, I almost saw Martin Landau die once at a film festival. He fell down some stairs. Oh, and everybody thought he was dead. Literally, everybody just went, oh my God, Martin Landau just died. Because oh, wow. he is about a thousand years old yeah. at the moment. And when he fell, everyone was like, oh, we just killed Martin Landau to screen the Frankenweenie. Uh, and uh, he got up and went, no, I'm fine. I'm just yeah. old and fell. Do you know, this happens all the time. You're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Here he looks a billion. Yeah. He deliberately looks, so. Yeah, this is actually a, one of, the, again, one of my favorite picks of this week. It's not necessarily the greatest movie ever, but it really is sold on Christopher Plummer and Martin Landau. And you realize just what a treasure these actors are. The fact that they're both 90 or damn well near, and yet still committing to this material. Uh, Christopher Plummer is a, uh, a 90-year-old man. He's living in a nursing home. He's suffering from dementia. His wife has recently Profound passed away. Dementia. This is sort of like memento for the uh, 90-year-old set. And fortunately, he has, not so fortunately, he has an Auschwitz prison tattoo on his arm. That kind of helps remind him who he is. He also has a detailed letter from one of his fellow nursing home residents played by Landau, Max, who, as we find out, used to work with Simon Wiesenthal as a uh, the, the famous Nazi hunter. And basically, as we have a character who cannot remember anything, and we have another character who can remember everything, but his body is completely broken, and together they form this kind of strange two-man task force. Uh, with Max sort of being uh, the Christopher Plummer character's handler who sends him off into the world with this detailed list reminding him daily what it is he needs to do, who he needs to find an interview, and yes, if necessary, kill. Because the purpose is that there is a... The man who killed their families in the concentration camps is in America. Yeah. And they just can't work out exactly where he There's is. Because candidates. He, because he's under... Uh, he's He's... Would under a pseudonym, um, and they are literally the last two living souls who know who can positively ID this guy. Yeah, and one of them is one of them can't leave the nursing home, and the other one um, is uh, totally senile. Yeah, and keeps having to read the, this letter to remind himself who he is. Uh, the great thing about that dynamic of how you know, first of all, Plummer and Landau, particularly yeah. Plummer, yeah. just throw themselves into these performances so completely. Yeah. We, you've never seen him like this. I mean, Christopher Plummer, we're so used to being so authoritative, strong, and imposing. Here, he is fragile, he is frightened, and yet he's on a mission to kill a man. And it's such a strange dynamic that you just can't help take your eyes off of him. Uh, in fact, you know, and the, you, they actually build a really stellar cast here. Uh, Jürgen oh, yeah. Prochnow is in here yeah. as well. Bruno Gans. Bruno Gans. This, you know, just, uh, Dean Norris is in this. Yeah, just... just Stellar is that, but it really concentrates on on Plummer trying to remember who he is, yeah, and what he's doing, and having to look at this letter. And to what extent does vengeance have any value if you can't even remember why you're doing it? Yeah. Also, I mean, if you think about it, the whole point of like the the Nazi hunter program was to make sure that nobody ever forgot to bring these people to justice, to make sure that the world remembered what happened, and yet you have a man who cannot remember. And the way it pays off 
is both surprising and inevitable. I don't want to give that away, but a very, very strong choice. The cover is awful. There's an action pose, a plumber holding a Photoshop pistol, and then some dopey tagline like, it's never too late to, to avenge, or something stupid like that. Don't buy that. This is a much more thoughtful, uh, Adam McGoyan-directed feature, and it's well worth your time. Yeah, I This just, is my second runner-up picker of the week. This is, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, and, and the fact it's Adam Agia. Yeah. Who is just on a roll at the moment. I mean, he, he really went away for a while. I think people kind of forgot mm. how capable he is of doing these really just off kilter, unnerving, mm. um, depictions of what it is when you're put into plausible but extraordinary circumstances. He actually did one of my favorite, going back to Ryan Reynolds when it's just discussing Barry, he did one of my favorite Ryan Reynolds films, The Captive, which was, uh, came out a couple of years oh, ago. Nobody ever saw that. It was a yeah, real shame. Uh, it's on that big pile of things that Ryan Reynolds does that peak and are really cutting, cutting edge and fascinating and really well performed that I think people don't need to go and see them. Uh, and, you know, I love Deadpool. I also love, yeah. um, the captive and the voices and all that material that like Reynolds isn't really appreciated. Well, let's hope that Deadpool will subsidize the next five little indie Ryan Reynolds films. Oh, I, well, I think he paid. I think he's paid for a whole bunch of them himself. Oh, yeah, I mean, he could probably with the money he made off. I don't. I don't know what points he had on Deadpool, but I hope he had points. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he must have, Robin. Uh, yeah, just I'm sure it. he's created the Deadpool Ryan Reynolds Future Children's College. <laughs> For, for for wonderful Canadians. Yes. Oh, well, you know what? What's oh, that, we've come to the end. We no. have indeed come to almost the end. Almost the end. Because when we got through the reviews, it's time for the. Oh, I don't have any voice, but yes. <laughs> imagine that I was singing along. <laughs> so, what is the giveaway today? Okay, this week actually. Um, Big treat. Yeah, okay, we've been a little bit more highbrow this week, and we're going to continue that theme. Oh, we really, really are. Yeah, um, with uh, the latest adaptation of War and Peace. Oh, I know. Yeah, aren't we all swanky? Is it heavily abridged? Will uh, it take me no, five years to get through? It's not as long as the uh, the epic Russian version, which <laughs> which I think is about 14 what, hours. What... what? Epic Russian version. I think that's just the Russian Isn't version. That a, I don't yeah, think yeah, epic is required. All the tautologies. Um, but no, this is the uh, this is the eight hour uh, BBC uh, version. Um, really quite splendid. I mean, this is you know one of the, the, the true greats of Russian literature, and this is a really good adaptation of right. it. Um, uh, Paul Dano as Pierre, Lily James as Natasha, uh, James Norton as Andre. I mean, it's you know. It's it's the I, the best story really of you know love and romance among, about, among aristocrats as an empire falls. <laughs> the, you know, this is this is one of the great novels, and this is a really really good adaptation. Oh. Uh, well worth your time. Well worth winning. Uh, you know, if nothing else, it'll keep you busy for eight hours. It's a long one. It's a good one. Yeah. Looks Truly like some packed with special features. Very this. packed. This is a, this is a, a a sterling sterling giveaway. Um, so, how do you win? Okay, very simple. Uh, you need to follow us on Twitter, at oneofusnet. Uh, you need to use the hashtag, um, war giveaway. Okay. 
And you have to answer this question. Uh, Marco, you got a question for us this week? If you could adapt any classic work of Russian literature and cast Rudy Ray Moore in it, which would it be? <laughs> okay, I'm going to extend that, because just in case. Uh, I'll say any classic work of literature. That's much better. Uh, and, and, and have Rudy Ray Moore in it, which would it be? Um, oh, the, the Brontes are going to get raided hard on this one. There's going to be some, yeah. Hey, so, yeah. Anywhere there's a bunch of women in a house, you know Rudy Ray Moore is going to take over that, that place. That would be the most inappropriate. It would be. Like, oh, yeah. Actually, not quite as inappropriate as Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. But, you know, uh, there you go. But, Rudy yeah. Ray Moore would kick all those zombies' ass and then get into all those corsets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he really was. Slice them open with you. Do okay. something better, people. Okay. You can do something better than that. So, yes. Follow us on Twitter, at one of us net. Uh, use the hashtag war giveaway uh, and tell us which work of classic literature you would like to see adapted with Rudy Ray Moore in a starring role. Um, which film would he improve just by his just presence? Just by just being there. Being. So, yeah, and you can win this phenomenal adaptation of uh, War and Peace. Okay, um, we have come to the end. Thank you, as always, Marco, for helping me wade through this endless, yeah. uh, seemingly endless list. Yeah. This is a really good week. Some yeah, really absolutely strong. We're going to, oh, we're going to pay for it somewhere down the oh, road. Oh, yeah. But, but this was good, folks. Mid, mid-August is going to be the, uh, the, the, uh, yeah, the, the <laughs> session. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. As as we said before, if you want to buy any of these titles, just scroll down and click onto any of the links. And they will take you direct to the Amazon page. Uh, if you're a subscriber, thank you so much. If you're thinking about a subscriber, we really, really appreciate. If you do join up, it costs you very little and you get a whole bunch of ex- exclusive content on a weekly basis. So, uh, yeah, that's right. it. Thank you, Marco, as always. Thank you, Richard. And as we always say at the end, no release is too big, no, no release is too small. small. From criteria to catastrophe, we review them all. Yes, indeed. Thank you and good night. God bless.